So I wondered aloud last week if there's not one very specific thing haunting some of those Pharisees as they find themselves in the place of eternal torment, even to this day. As they find themselves engulfed in the unquenchable fires of hell. I wonder if there's not one very specific image just, just burned into their minds. As they think back to their rejection, their refusal, their, their hatred towards Jesus Christ. And as they see the image of his back walking away from them, he had been right there before their eyes, preaching and teaching the very same gospel that called others to life. Yet they were so filled with pride and sin and hardness of heart, they rejected. So as he turned and he walked away and he got in that boat and he sailed to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. I've got to wonder whether this eternity, this fiery eternity, this eternity of judgment they find themselves under, that scene doesn't just keep coming back over and over and over again. I have no way, obviously, of knowing. No way of knowing what hell really looks like. No way of knowing what regrets might be there. But what I do know is that Jesus left these men just as he found them, blind and deaf and hardened in their hearts. I've got to imagine that surely from the pits of hell, they're crying out like the rich man in Luke 16, God, would you please send someone to warn the others? Would you please send someone to warn the others to repent and believe in this gospel today while it is still day? Tell them that there is no guarantee of a tomorrow. Plead with them that there is no promise of another opportunity to turn and repent. Tell them that you may well leave them in their hardened hearts once and for all, destined for an eternity just like this. But I can't help as I read those last words of, those final few words of last week's text, I can't help but wonder. I can't help but shudder at the idea. And what I do know for sure is that Jesus turning his back and walking away, it was more than just physical. It was a picture. It was symbolic of Jesus' repudiation of what the nation of Israel had become. They rejected him as their king. They denied him as the Christ. Less than a year from this point, they would find their opportunity to call for his, call for his death. The ultimate picture of their rejection of the Messiah that had come to them. All according to God's sovereign plan, and yet those that participated, they would each answer for the ways in which they had acted sinfully. Matthew 26, 24. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man had he not been born. Speaking, of course, of the betrayer, of Judas. And yet we know that every single person all along the way that rejected Jesus Christ, those who participated in the calls for his death, they would answer someday. And as for these Pharisees, they had all the opportunity in the world all the knowledge of God's word you could possibly imagine. All the worship, 
all the time in the synagogues, all the time in the temple. It was absolutely no use to them because of their hardened hearts. And the one that could do something about that was in a boat sailing the opposite way. So with that, go ahead and stand to your feet, please. As we read a very different story this morning, out of Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, beginning in verse 14. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? All God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, we want to know you better. We fully confess that we are but a people grasping at times, unable to truly comprehend the realities of an infinite and eternal God. And yet, Father, it's not because we do not desire. We desire to know you more today. We ask that you would, from this place of belief, from this place of trust, that you would lead us into understanding, Father. First in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Now they, that is the disciples, now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. See, Jesus was often asking these men to carry out tasks. We know that he had entrusted to Judas the purse, the finances of the group. You remember that back in Mark 3 that Jesus had his disciples go and get a boat ready for him so that at the proper time he could climb out onto the water and teach from a place where he wouldn't be crushed by the crowd. In the feedings of the four and the 5,000, he had the disciples distribute the bread and then collect that which was left over. We know that on Jesus' last Passover that he would send his disciples ahead, that they would find a man there carrying a pitcher of water and that that man would show them the place where they were to observe the Passover feast. Before that, in Mark 11, we know that Jesus, before his triumphal entry, that he sent his disciples home to a, ahead to a town where they would secure for him the colt of a donkey. So that while Jesus was teaching, while Jesus was healing, while Jesus was doing these miraculous things, all the while he was allowing his disciples to participate, doing what they could. He was preparing them for much greater responsibility, knowing what lied ahead. And yet he would allow them to, to participate in these tasks all along the way. And again, he was, he was training them. Because he who is faithful over little, he will be entrusted with much. While this isn't the focus of this morning's sermon, I would ask you this morning, have you been faithful with that which God has entrusted to you? Have you been faithful to do the work that God has called you to do, specifically within the ministries of this church? No matter how small, no matter how meaningless they may seem to you in the moment in the grand scheme of things, have you been faithful to do what God has called you to do? Now, in my notes here, I have the words that say, before you answer yes, because I see all your heads nodding, but the reality is when I said these words, there wasn't a head in the room that nodded. I expected you all to be doing this. 
assuming that you were among the faithful, that you were among those that always did what you said you would do. But instead, I see I'm preaching to the choir. I see that you know just like I know that in most churches, and this church isn't any exclusion from that, that in most churches, there are people that sign up to do things, and then they just don't show up. Or they call the night before and expect somebody else to cover for them. We see this more in the children and preschool wing than anywhere else, but it really does go everywhere. Beloved, this ought not be. If this is you, I say this with all the love and compassion and tenderness I can muster. For your sake, for the sake of the church, for the sake of the kingdom and the king that you represent, when you say that you're going to do something, do it. Do it heartily as unto the Lord. Listen, when we ask people to agree to do something, we ask them to pray. We trust that you do this. We trust that you pray, and that as best you can discern, it is God's will that you would participate in this ministry. And we trust that if it is, in fact, God's will for you to take on this role, that he will equip you for that. How in the world, then, can you just not show? How in the world, then, can you just call the night before, just assuming that the ministry fairy is just going to drop some people in your place to show up and care for the kids, to give the halftime devotion, to lead the small group, to sweep the floors, to man the parking lot. Church, we serve an infinitely faithful God who cannot lie. We must be a people that does what we say we will do, even if nobody's going to know any different, even if we don't think there's going to be any real consequences. But again, I didn't see any heads nodding. So I see that you have your eyes opened. I see that you're well aware. But the wording here makes it seem like Jesus had entrusted to his disciples the responsibility of bringing some breaks. It says that they forgot as if it was their responsibility to remember to bring bread. Perhaps it was just the fast pace of it all. I mean, this really was a whirlwind, right? I mean, they jump into the boat, and they head east to west. They feed the 4,000. After feeding the 4,000, when they get to the west, immediately they're confronted by the Pharisees. There's this en engagement there, and then immediately they're back in the boat, and they're headed back to the eastern shore. And then I'm guessing they just got it all wrapped up in it. They forgot to grab some of the bread along the way. And Jesus, fully aware of this situation, he wasn't going to miss out on his opportunity to teach. In verse 15, he says that he, that is Jesus, cautioned them, saying, watch out. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Watch out. Beware. It's a warning from Jesus. Jesus doesn't warn you about things arbitrarily. He doesn't warn you about things if they're not a real threat. Unless there's a chance that you may actually be ensnared. So he says, watch out. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of, head, of Herod. Now, Scripture often talks about the picture of leaven. Now, unless you're a baker or a brewer, you're not somebody that thinks about leaven. You don't think about yeast all that much, except during the lockdown. The minute the lockdown happened, everybody turned into the pioneer woman, and they were all going to bake their own bread. And you remember this. Yeast was impossible to find. The only thing harder to find than toilet paper was yeast, and people were trading it like gold. I'm thankful for that. It's a carb loader, a constant carb loader. I'm thankful for this. But during normal times, we don't think much about yeast. And yet, in the ancient Near East, you couldn't just run to the store and grab a loaf of bread. And so generally speaking, if you wanted some bread, you had to fix it for yourself. And if you wanted it to rise, if you wanted it to be leavened, you had to come up with the yeast. 
Now, yeast is an organism. It's a living thing. Living things have to eat. Specifically, yeast eats sugar. When it eats that sugar, what it produces is alcohol and carbon dioxide. Now, the alcohol, it generally bakes off. It evaporates away as the loaf is, is being baked. But the carbon dioxide, that gas, it's what causes the bread to rise. Without yeast, you end up with flatbread. So just as people in ancient Palestine, just as they couldn't just run to the store and grab a loaf of bread, they also couldn't go on Amazon and buy a packet of yeast. But that's okay because yeast is everywhere. As a matter of fact, you could go home today if you wanted to and cultivate wild yeast and cause your, yeast, uh, cause your bread to rise. In fact, what they would do often is they would take the yeast off of grape leaves, they would put it in their bread, then the red bread would rise. But those of you that have ever done this, you know that it takes some time. It takes some time for the bread to rise. And so we read about this on the night when God called his people out of slavery in Egypt, on the night of the Passover. You'll remember that as Jesus told them to take that perfect, that sacrificial, that substitutionary lamb, to take his life, then to take his blood, and to spread it on the, bolt, on the doorpost and on the lentil. Then as they ate that lamb together with a belt tied around their waist and their sandals strapped and their staff in their hand, that that night as the angel of death passed through, passed through and took the life, demanded the life of every firstborn in the homes of those which were not covered in the blood. But that along with that came the institution of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That because the people were going to be thrust from Egypt, because they were going to have to leave with great haste, they didn't have time for their bread to rise, they didn't have time to make these provisions. So what they took with them, what they ate, was unleavened bread. Exodus 12, 14 through 15. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast of the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever, and you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your house. For if anyone eats what is leaven from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. So that from that point forward, every year, beginning on the 15th day of the month of Nisan, the people were to not only not eat leaven products, but they were to get all yeast out of their house. They were to remove leaven things out of their house because yeast represents sin. Now in the New Testament, Yeast is very often, leaven is very often spoken of in the same terms. There are some exceptions. There's an exception like Matthew 13 and its parallel in Luke where it's spoken of in positive terms. We read this, Matthew 13, 33. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leaven. Jesus here is comparing the kingdom of God to leaven. Specifically the fact that while it may be hidden, while it may be unseen, while it may be tiny, once it is planted, once it is there, it does its job, it spreads, it takes over, it affects everything that it touches, either for good or for bad. But more often than not, what we find in the New Testament is that yeast is talking, talked about in negative terms, talked about as representing sin, like 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened, as you, <clears throat> excuse me, for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Often unseen, and yet everywhere around you. Sweep the corners of your house, and it's just going to settle right back down there where it was. This leaven, this sin, it is everywhere around us, permeating, touching, affecting everything that it comes into contact with. And that once there, it does what yeast does. It eats. It grows. It changes the things that it's been planted inside of, taking over. Steve Lawson says that leaven, for the first century Jewish man, that the word leaven was a one-word par uh, parable. That as you hear the word leaven, those with 
eyes that see and ears that hear, you immediately recognize that you're being warned about sin. The pervasive, the penetrating, the all-encompassing nature of what this thing does when it comes into your life. Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of, he- of, of Herod. So Jesus isn't just warning the men to watch out for sin in general. He's talking about something specific, specifically the leaven of the Pharisees. On a later occasion, he's going to show us a little more about what the leaven of the Pharisees is. When we read about Jesus as he's headed towards Jerusalem, in Luke 12, 1, he says, Beware the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. He's talked about this in Mark's gospel as well. Mark 7, 6 through 7. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. These men were hypocrites. They had built an entire religious system on hypocrisy, saying the right words, going to the right synagogues, offering the right sacrifices with hardened hearts that are far away from God. Hearts that worship self rather than worshiping the Lord. Hearts that were determined to stack law upon law instead of reckoning with the filth, the sin, It is evil within their own hearts. We've talked about this. They built a fence around the law. In their mind, if we can come up with just enough rules that I never stumble into sin, then I never have to admit my own depravity, and I never have to come humbly to the Lord. I never have to repent. These hearts which ignored the word of God in exchange for the commandments of men. This was the leaven of the Pharisees. As they piled these rules, these man-made laws on top of the backs of others, those that they were intended to lead, this was the leaven that he's warning them against. Dear friends, is there still a leaven of Pharisees around today? Well, not by name, but certainly we experience it. By men who preach outward, heartless religion. By men who teach it, if you'll just walk an aisle, get baptized, and join a church, that everything's going to be okay. That men are more focused on leading someone to recite a prayer after them than they have any concern for laying down your life, taking up your cross, and following Jesus Christ. Men that would argue over things like music styles and untucked shirts in church and giving no concern about the new birth or a truly changed life. The leaven of Pharisees is alive and well. What about the leaven of Herod? What is that? We remember who Herod is. Herod Antipas. He was a fake king. Married his brother's wife. John the Baptist had come and warned him, told him, it is not right that you would marry your brother's wife like this confronted him in this very public sin. We're told that Herod was afraid of John the Baptist. He knew that he was a holy and a righteous man, and yet he imprisoned him because he continued to go around and confront him in his sin, and Herod would not repent. He would not let loose of this thing that he desired, even when God's word clearly stated that it was sin. So he imprisoned John, but he wouldn't take his life because he was afraid. Again, he knew that he was a holy and righteous man until that night when his daughter came in, his stepdaughter, She came in and did a lascivious dance for him and his powerful friends. He was so impressed that he told her, I'll give to you anything you want, even up to half of my kingdom. And the girl, under the guidance of her mother, you remember this? She asked for the head of John the Baptist. Herod still did not want to take the life of John. And yet fearful for the sake of his own reputation, because people looked on, still unwilling to let loose of his sin, he obliged and John was killed. This is the leaven of Herod. Those in this world that are so destined on holding on to their sin. They're so worried about the things of this world. Power, lust, money, prestige, reputation, politics. That they won't let loose of their own sin even when confronted head on. Even when the one that comes preaching the message, even when they know that he is holy and that he is righteous. They're too worried about the way they'll be viewed by the world. 
They're too worried about this little kingdom that they've built for themselves that they refuse to let go. Beloved, I don't need to convince you that the leaven of Herod is alive today. Then in Matthew's parallel text, he says that Jesus also warned them to watch out for the leaven of the Sadducees. The Sadducees were a religious sect, much like the Pharisees, except while the Pharisees were the ultra-conservative, while the Pharisees were the, the legalists, the Sadducees were the liberals. They were the ones that did not believe in the spirit world. They did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in life after death. They believed generally that the universe consisted of nothing other than that which you could see and taste and touch and hear, much like the modern world of today. They tell us, why would you hold on to this fantasy? Why would you talk about angels and demons and such? Why would you talk about heaven and hell? Why would you talk about a resurrection? That's childish stuff. We have science now. We're enlightened. We know so much more than those old ancient folks. How could you possibly hold on to these things? We see this alive and well in churches today. Churches that twist and work and strain to turn Jesus into nothing more than a good moral teacher. Nothing more than a fine example of a man. These churches that they believe that the entirety of the gospel is summed up in what would Jesus do? Those that seek to take the, job, the uh, cross of Jesus Christ and completely rob it of any power? Leave us with nothing more than an example. Look how much God loves you. That's the sum of their gospel. We see this alive and well in churches all over the world. And he's warning them. He's warning his disciples. He's warning the disciples that were in the boat with him on that day. And he's warning his disciples in this room today. Watch out. Beware. Jesus had to warn. He had to cry out because yeast doesn't announce itself. It doesn't walk up and say, hello, I'm the leaven of the Pharisees. You might have heard of me. It sneaks in. It comes in when you're not watching. It's everywhere around us. But once it's in, it does what it came to do. Unnoticed at first, but eventually it spreads. It takes over your thoughts, your hearts. To your left with just a meaningless, broken theology. No real concept of who you are, who God is, what salvation is meant to look like. And so he warns them, watch out, beware, be on guard. Don't play around with these things. Don't hang around and listen to people that preach these things. Dear ones, you need to understand that you've got a responsibility, that the onus is on you to guard the things that come into your ears and into your heart. Listen, every preacher is going to answer for every word that he says. Trust me, I know this. Why do you hear my voice tremble at times when I'm standing in this place? I'm not an emotional guy. I'm not fighting back tears. Maybe I am an emotional guy, but I'm not fighting back tears. But it's fear at times. Because there's words sometimes that come out that I wish I could bring back. I'm going to answer for that one. Preachers are going to answer for the words that they say. Peter in 2 Peter 2.1 talks about these false prophets, these false teachers, that they bring upon themselves swift destruction. But it's up to you to take great care who you allow yourself to sit under and what you allow yourself to study. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the spring of life. You'll do well to notice that the danger here doesn't all come from just one place. This is a broad range of danger that Jesus is warning about. The Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, they didn't agree on hardly anything. And yet they twisted. They undermined. They blasphemed the living God. And so he warns them. He warns you today. Beware of legalism, yes. Beware of the prosperity gospel, yes. Beware of empty outward religion, yes. Beware of those who refuse to hold on to the inerrancy and the authority of Scripture, yes. Beware of anything 
other than the straightforward gospel of Jesus Christ, we have anything other than what the God of Word has plainly said to us, because those things can distort and take over and ruin your theology. Beware. Don't even go near. Listen, when I yell to somebody, watch out, you take a wide path, I hope. I hope you don't go stand on the edge and look down in the hole. I hope that you steer clear. And he's telling them, watch out. Listen, it's good to know that these false teachings are out there. Should we be able to identify them when we hear them? Of course, yes. That's what we do. We study back through church history. We study back through the controversies. We study back through the fights that have happened throughout all history. But ultimately, our greatest offense against this is to study and meditate and memorize and hide into our heart the Word of God. That's why Paul says in Romans 16, 19, be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. I don't have to know all the evils that are out there. I don't have to be able to lay out for you the systematic theology of heresy. I have to hide in my heart the truth of God's Word. As best I can understand what God is saying in His Word, I hide that in my heart. I study that. I meditate on it. I preach it to you. We wrestle with it together. So at the end of this thing, that's what's there. There's so much of that there, there's no room for anything else. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellent, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Dear friends, there's so much beauty in this word. There's so much truth in this word. There's so much that we could hide in our hearts. And that's my prayer for us as a church. We would be so filled with the truth of God's word that anything else would be like a clanging gong to us. We wouldn't be able to, would not be able to stand this false teaching. That the moment a preacher stands up and offers any kind of substitute, any kind of fluff, that our heart rebels. It makes us want to throw up. And when a preacher gets up, and he presents the gospel as nothing more than God's great plan for your life. Let me tell you all the ways that God wants to bless you here and now. That while you may not stand up and storm out, that your heart is turning within you. Think lies. But you know it when you hear it because you know the truth. You stand so strongly on that truth that anything else is just detestable. That's what he's saying here. Beware. That's how we Beware. And they began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. These dudes, man. Jesus was concerned. He was warning them about the danger of having their souls corrupted. And immediately they go to talking about bread. And I don't really know why. Like, I don't know if it's because they thought he was mad that they had forgotten the bread. I don't know if he was warning them, like if they thought that he was warning them about real bread. Like if maybe he was saying, hey, when we get to the other side, the Pharisees are going to be there and they're going to offer you bread. And, and like a little kid on Halloween, don't take it. There's razor blades in there. Like I don't know what they thought he was talking about here. But immediately they go to talking about bread. They completely miss this one word parable, as Steve Lawson calls it, in exchange for talk about physical bread. And you do realize that these words came to Mark from somebody that was in that boat. It wasn't Jesus. It was probably Peter. I can just picture Peter like slapping his head going, we were so stupid. We were so dense. We were there with Jesus when the Jews chased him down. And he said, quit looking for physical bread. You come to me, the bread of life. And we know that his teaching, it was never just about the bread or the seed or the soil or the oil. We know there was always something deeper there, but we just couldn't get it. Didn't matter how often we heard his words, we continued to struggle. I can relate. I don't know how Jesus didn't just kick him out of the boat or jump out of the boat himself and swim to shore and say, you have at it, guys. But he didn't. It says here, verse 17, 
Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see, and having ears do you not hear? He spoke to them using the exact same words he used to the outsiders. Do you remember that? As he was teaching in the parables, he says this to, to his disciples in Mark 4, 10 through 12. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those on the outside, everything is in parables. So that they may indeed see but not perceive, they may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. This is a quote from Isaiah 6, Jeremiah 5, Ezekiel 12. Continually talking about those that don't have ears to hear, eyes to see, those that have hardened hearts. It's a fundamental problem. We've talked about this. It's a fundamental problem, the central problem of fallen man. Jesus had just spoken in very similar terms about the Pharisees. He had just left some hard-hearted men on the shore to get into the boat with men that continue to struggle with hardened hearts. Again, it was a recurring theme for his disciples. We read about it whenever Jesus walked on the sea to them, and they were terrified. Mark 6, 50 through 52, immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand yet about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. These are the men that Jesus had called. They had been with him. They had walked with him. They had eaten his food. They had slept with him under the stars. Surely God had granted them faith. No one keeps following Jesus after this. They had turned their back on everything they knew. The political class wanted to kill them. The religious class wanted to kill them. There was going to be no going back to this after following with Jesus. They left everything to follow him, and yet still they battled hardened hearts. Love, this brings me great sorrow, but it also brings me incredible comfort. Because he didn't leave them there. Unlike the Pharisees that he left, he turned and left in their heart and hearts, and he refused to give a sign. He would not speak another word. He left them there recoiling, rejecting the light of Jesus Christ because they love the darkness because their ways are evil. The closer the light came, the deeper they withdrew into their darkness. He didn't do that with them. He would grant them eyes to see and ears to hear. He would soften them. He would draw them to the light. I think we see a hint of this when he says, do you not yet understand and the fact that he continued to teach he was aware of the hardness of their heart and yet he continued to speak to them he helped them to understand he brought them to the point of understanding and of belief and we need to remember now that these men were no more deserving than the pharisees these guys were sinners just like all the rest you had within this group a tax collector that stole from his people a zealot who may or may not have been involved in political violence a rash man who sweared allegiance to jesus only to deny him three times before the rooster crowed And brothers that were arguing over who would be greatest in the kingdom. All of them scattering when the shepherd was struck. These guys were a real mess. And yet these are the ones that Jesus had called. By grace, by nothing but grace, he would soften their hearts, open their eyes, give them ears to understand that by believing, they may come to an understanding. You need to understand this. That's where understanding begins. At the place of believing. The Archbishop of Canterbury in the 11th century is a man named Anselm. He said, credo, ut, and telegum. Anybody know what that means? I see one man smiling. I believe that I may understand. Can we understand things about God without believing in him? Sure. Romans 1 says that man is without excuse. There are things which God has revealed about himself, and man is completely without excuse. And yet to truly understand the things of the kingdom of God, 
To truly understand who he is, we must come from a place of believing. As a man that has dedicated my life to teaching God's word, dedicated my life to trying to help people to understand God's word, I know this more true than, I see this more clearly today than ever before. That unless a man believes, unless, a God, unless God softens his heart, there's no amount of intellect that's going to believe him to a true understanding of the things of the kingdom of God. That springs forth from, a, forth from a heart of belief. And the world tells us the opposite. The world tells us, help me to understand it all, and then maybe I'll believe in Jesus. Explain to me how sovereignty and free will works, then I'll come to faith in Jesus Christ. It's not the way it works. By the way, you're never going to fully understand the sovereignty of God. Did any of you go home this week and think, surely these things must be reconciled in my mind? It's good to wrestle, but you ain't going to get there. But the things that can be known of the kingdom of God, the understanding that can be had for these deep things, it comes from a heart of belief. Listen again to the words I read last week of Ephesians 4.18. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is within them. What is the ignorance within them due to? It is due to the hardness of their hearts. They were darkened in their understanding. They were ignorant because of the hardness of their heart. We talked about this negatively last week. We talked about this positively this week. Because what we find is that Jesus, as he brings him to the place where Peter makes the confession, you are the Christ. From that point forward, we find them growing in their understanding. Perfectly? Of course not. Even at the end, even after the resurrection, they continue to struggle in their understanding. And yet that's what Jesus was doing for them, walking with them, continuing to teach them, focusing on their understanding from that point of belief. As they cried out, I know that you are the Christ. I know that there's nowhere else that we can go to find the words of eternal life. I know that you are the king and you bring with you the kingdom of God. I don't understand it all. I know that I won't understand it all in this lifetime. But I know that any hope of understanding springs forth from a heart of belief, from a heart of trust. And so he says, do you not remember? Remembering is one of the keys to the life of the faithful. For the Israelites, it was remembering what was up to that point the ultimate show in God's redemptive plan. Exodus 20, 2 through 3 says this. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. He's saying, look backwards and remember what I did. In that place of remembrance, remembering my mighty hand and remembering my grace in your redemption. will give you the ability to hold to these truths. There is no God other than me. For the church, we look back to the cross. Luke twenty two nineteen. 19. This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The table is more than remembrance, but it is certainly a remembrance. Our faith is strengthened when we look back and we remember. We remember the goodness, the loving nature, the mighty hand of this immutable God. One of the keys to our faith. He goes on. Do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. He just peppers them with questions. Do you remember when I fed the 5,000? How many baskets did you pick up? What about the 4,000? How many baskets did you pick up? And they knew the answers. They knew all the Bible trivia. They knew all the Sunday school answers. But this in and of itself does not equal faith. This is one of my great fears for our kids. You know, the church kids. They grow up knowing all the answers. And listen, it's good. It is right to teach our preschoolers how tall Goliath was or how many stones David had. That's part of Scripture, and all Scripture is God-breathed. It's good for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. All the words. We don't throw out the words which give us the trivia, but my fear is that we just stop with the facts. My fear is that we just stop with the knowledge of the things of the Bible and that we don't come all the way to faith. 
much like the people in Jesus' hometown, much like his own family. They knew all the things about Jesus, but they didn't come to saving faith in him. They refused to sit at his feet and do what he said to do. That's my fear for our children. That's the fear for me at times. Do we can just study this book like we're studying math facts, like we're studying the periodic table. You know those men. They love to mesmerize people with all the little tidbits that they can pull out of Scripture, and their life looks nothing like Christ. The trivia is not enough. The facts aren't enough. Now, I do think that there was a purpose in Jesus pointing back to these feedings, though. He was trying to help them to get their eyes fixed on heavenly things, and they couldn't get their mind off of the earthly. And so he's reminding them, I'm the God that brings bread from nothing. In the wilderness with your fathers, manna from heaven. But you saw the same kind of acts as I brought bread for you in the wilderness. So why on earth would you get distracted by these earthly things? It reminds me of the Sermon on the Mount. It reminds me there as Jesus was telling people. They need to be seeking the kingdom of God. They need to have their eyes fixed on the kingdom of God. They need to be sending treasures ahead to the kingdom of God. They need to be giving joyfully, liberally to the kingdom of God. And then all the while, they don't need to be worrying about the things of this world. Look how the Father cares for the birds. Look how he cares for the plants. You're worth so much more than them. So you don't have to worry about bread. You don't have to worry about water. You don't have to worry about clothing. Then these words that you all know so well. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you. He's, hope, he's telling them here, reminding the disciples they're in the boat. I've called you to myself. I've called you to enter and be used of the kingdom of God, to seek my righteousness. Now keep your eyes fixed on me and quit worrying about the earthly things. If I've called you to something, I'm going to equip, equip you for it completely, spiritually and physically. I'm going to equip you for it. I didn't call you into the kingdom of God and go, oh, I forgot, humans got to be fed like we're some pet canary. He knows that we need food. He knows that we need clothing. He says, just as I have provided for your every need, I will continue to provide. I know that you need food. I know that you need clothing. I know that you need money. I know that you need water. I've called you to a task, and my plans will not fail. I will make certain that you have all that you need to get there. Does this mean that you'll never starve to death? Of course not. If you were with us two uh, Wednesday nights ago, you remember that we talked about our beloved Lottie Moon. It's about that time, by the way. The way that you give to Lottie Moon, go to the Church Center app, and you click on it, you scroll down, hit Lottie Moon, and give. It's our offering for international missionaries. Lottie Moon was a lady that literally gave her life for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the lost. She fought so that she could go serve on the international mission field, giving away what little rations she had so that by the time her compatriots found her, she was down to 50 pounds. So they loaded her up in a boat and intended to take her home, and she died in the harbor. Had Lottie Moon not faithfully sought the kingdom of God? Or had God failed in his promise? Which one? Well, we know this precious saint sought the kingdom of God. We know that God does not break his promises. What we also know is that the, at the appointed time, Scripture tells us that God has numbered the days of your life. And that by being anxious about the days of your life, you cannot add one second to them. God has said, I will provide everything to carry you to your appointed end. I will give you everything that you need to accomplish all that I've called you to in this life, and then I will call you home. Listen, he was saying this to the saints that were going to give their lives. Some of them were going to be burned alive. Some of them were going to be crucified. Certainly some of them were going to starve to death. He said, you don't need to worry about these things because you can't stop. You can't add a day to your life on the back end by worrying about it. 
So you might as well seek the kingdom of God, keep your eyes fixed on me, trusting that I'll provide everything you need to carry you up until that day. And then I will bury your body in the ground and your soul will come to me. The same that was true of every single believer in that boat, every single believer in this room. He's saying, seek the kingdom of God. Seek the kingdom of God. Because he knew what awaited him. He knew that there was going to be great opportunity to worry about earthly things ahead as real persecution came. And then he says to them, do you not yet understand? So he's asking again. How many times have I asked myself that question? At 40-something years old, don't you understand? How do you still not understand? After all the life that you've lived, after all the goodness of God that you've seen, after all the ways that you've seen God work miraculously in your lives and the lives of others, of all the ways that you've seen sin destroy your own life, of all the ways that you've seen what flesh leads to, how do you still not understand? They still didn't understand, and so he's asking them. I know for myself, part of the reason is because I've wasted way too much of my life focusing on things that don't matter at all. Listen, we've got very limited time in this life. Instead of taking that time and devoting it to the things of the kingdom of God, instead of taking that time studying his word and hiding his word in my heart, I spend it worrying about other stuff. The stuff that the world tries to lure me away with. And again, his concern wasn't just that they knew the facts. It wasn't just that they knew his word so they could go into jeopardy and win some money. It was because he knew what waited for him ahead. He knew how hard the road was going to get. He knew how real the trials were going. He knew that he was going to depart to be with the Father, and he was going to leave them here. The gospel of the kingdom of God in the hands of these 12 ordinary, weak men. He knew how hard the path would be, and so he's telling them, without this understanding, you have no chance. Now, God seems to be drawing us to the book of Hebrews often. Sometimes what happens is as we're walking through Mark, and I continue to refer to other books, people come up to me after service and say, why don't you just go preach that book? I got told this earlier about the book of John. Pretty soon somebody's going to come to me and say, why don't you just go preach through Hebrews then if you love referring to the Hebrews. But it applies here, right? Because you remember that we discussed last week in the book of Hebrews that the author there was calling people to come all the way to Christ. Don't stop, sh- don't stop short. Don't turn around and go back to the old life. Continue. Keep coming. Come all the way to faith. And then from that point of faith, from that point of faith, by the power of the Spirit, by the authority of the Word to grow in your understanding, don't just stand still. Don't just come into the door and stop. Continue coming and continue pushing deep. That's one of the evidences that we know that we have the Holy Spirit as we see him working in us to bring us to an understanding. But many of these believers, that's what they did. They'd come there and they just stopped. And he's saying, you're in danger. You're in danger of apostasy. You're in danger of going backwards because you're just stopping right where you are. I don't think that this is a perfect analogy, but I couldn't help but think about it this week as we studied this. I studied this thinking back to so many football coaches I had that would warn me in the offseason. There is no such thing as staying the same. You're either getting better or you're getting worse. Now, again, I don't know that this is a perfect analogy, but it seems to be in part what he's saying here. He's saying you've got to keep coming. You've got to keep growing. You can't just stop. You can't just stop. So listen to these words. Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you against, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk. Not solid food, for everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. It seems to me that the author of the Hebrews, very similarly to Jesus, very similar to what I've urged you for all this time. Now listen, the gospel was unfolding before their very eyes, but for us, they had this revelation of God. 
complete written revelation in our hands. He's telling us we should have matured more by now. We should have grown. He's granted us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to believe. We should have been maturing. In that maturing in, in our understanding, but instead we're moving backwards. We're becoming dull. Saying, do you not understand? Are you stuck on milk? You should be on steak by now. Listen, I could get up here and I could preach John 3.16 every single Sunday and never exhaust the wonder of its greatness, the power of its words. And there's certainly non-believers that could benefit from hearing that message. There are certainly baby believers that need to continue to drink from that milk. And we never need to lose sight of the basics of the gospel. That's where some people get in trouble. They lose sight of the sound, basic doctrines of their faith. And yet he's saying, listen, while it's cute to watch a baby drink from a bottle, a grown man at 40 walking around drinking a bottle, that's sick. You should have grown. You're meant to be mature believers. You should have grown and moved on to steak. But you don't. So I have to continually reteach to you the basics. I have to tuck you under my arm and give you your baba. Because you're not maturing. In fact, you're moving backwards. It's part of my job as your pastor. Part of the job of the leaders at this church is to push you, is to exhort you, is to encourage you, to mature. But you've got to do the work. And dear friends, it is work. You've got to wrestle with God's word. Fighting for the faith. Continuing to come to God's word. Understanding it's going to be uncomfortable. You're going to bump up, to, up against things that you think, I will never understand this in my lifetime. And no, you may not. But as I told you last week, there's value in the wrestling. Strength comes in the wrestling, in the training. Listen to Ephesians 4, 13 through 14. God's talking to us here about the gifts that he's given us in the church. The apostles and the prophets and the teachers and the preachers and the evangelists. Verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature and the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Church, I think this is it. I think this is it. I think this is what he's warning the disciples then. I think it's what he's warning us today. He's saying, listen, you need to understand that there's all manner of traps out there. There's all manner of false doctrine out there. There's all manner of human cunning out there. There's all manner of churches out there that would just be all too happy to ensnare you with a false gospel. So you cannot walk around with a bottle in your mouth. You cannot walk around relying on milk. You must come to God's word and you must do the work. You must struggle. You must strive. In the power of the Holy Spirit, you don't have it in yourself, no. God must awaken you. He must give you eyes. He must give you ears. He must soften your heart. But when he does that, you then come to the word and you do the work. And you watch the way that the work transforms you. Word transforms you. You watch the way that it strengthens your faith. You watch the way that you mature. And then you watch the way that you can recognize the yeast when it comes in from all around. You watch the way that you can repudiate the false teachings. You watch the way that you can stand strong in your faith. Because you're a man that eats steak, not milk. Do you strive for that? Do you strive for maturity in the faith? Or you just thank God you got into heaven? Thank you, God, 
that you've led me to say that prayer that got me into heaven. That get out of hell free card, that golden ticket. Now let me go see what good stuff the earth has to offer me. Might as well enjoy what they have since I've already got my ticket punched. Beloved, I think God's doing something in our church. Because I watch so many of you wrestle with God's word. Please don't mistake the elevation in my tone for anger. It is passion. And it is passion that has been fueled by many of you. Passion that has been fueled by how many of you I watch wrestle with God's word. I'm not yelling at you because you're doing bad. I'm exhorting you because so many of you are doing well. And yet there's some that sit back. They sit back and wait to be fed. They sit back and wait for their warm bottle. We cannot be those people. Those people are prey. Those people are goats staked to the ground just waiting for the lion to come and snatch them up. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, for the truth of your word. Father, we recognize that recognize that in this revelation, Father, you have given us all that we need, all that we need to come to saving faith, all that we need for righteousness and holiness, that by the power of your spirit and the working of your word, that you have not just called us to enjoy the best things of this life and then punch our ticket to heaven, but you have called us to seek the kingdom of God here and now as kingdom citizens, and that there are real dangers all around us. And, Father, we need to learn to take up this sword and wield it well. Father, I thank you for this people that has a love for your word. I pray that you continue to spur us on to a deeper love for your word. That we would be a people that preach your word, that teach your word, that pray your word, that sing your word, that live out your word. Father, as we seek to sing some of those words back to you now, we seek to worship you and glorify you and honor you in your presence. We pray, Father, that you would be pleased. For it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen.